Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, Harrison and I are going to be discussing Graham Hancock's latest book, America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. And as the title suggests, what he is looking at in this very interesting, just furiously interesting book is the hidden history of the Americas, North and South America, the history that you're not taught in schools about Native uh, the Native Americans, natives to uh, North America, to Mexico, and to you know Brazil and the Amazon, and he really looks into all the data that uh, has been consistently published over the past you know five or six decades uh, that reveals a very startling um, break from accepted history that you know we that there was just a, you know, a migration of the natives into North America um, and then from there down to South America. And he points out all of the, the discrepancies in the actual data that falsify this, this theory that has been pretty much set in stone since you know, the Western colonization process of the Americas uh, began. Uh, just the idea that the natives in South America wouldn't have been capable of building or of creating the you know the vast uh, geoglyphs as he calls them vast structures stone structures vast civilizations giant cities um, because they wouldn't have had the know-how in order to do such a thing to undertake such a giant uh, civilizational undertaking because of the um, the limits that there are to living in a a rainforest, you know, the, the kinds of agricultural limits and the kinds of ingenuity that they implemented in, you know, domesticating just hundreds of different species of, of plants and fruits and vegetables that we live on today. And so, yeah, in this book, he, he's really, he's going through that and he's debunking a lot of the myths and he's looking at places like Serpent's Mound. He's looking at things like reminiscent of the Nazca Lines and various other different kinds of artifacts that are found in the caves of Siberia uh, to caves of you know Chile or Peru or in the Amazon rainforest, and really tying it all together and and giving us a really a much broader picture of what America was like, you know, because we tend to still think of it as, you know, the new world, you know, that it was discovered in 1492, and then if you're a little bit more liberally minded, then, you know, then you you tend to think that, well, it's just a bunch of tribes, you know, before then, we, you know, the West didn't discover it, but it was just, but it was still populated by tribes that were not very advanced. Um, but, you know, he goes and he blows that apart, and of course, Graham Hancock, as everybody knows, is his major hypothesis is that there was an advanced civilization that was straddled the globe at some point in the distant past, and that a lot of the mysterious um, artifacts, the wonders of the ancient world that we still that we see, um, are either artifacts of that or artifacts of the knowledge that had been passed down uh, over generations that had been corrupted, but had been you know people continuously trying to replicate what was perhaps. Uh, perhaps a golden age on the earth. So with that, Harrison, what do you think about the book? Well, uh, maybe just a, a bit on a bit of background on Hancock, like you mentioned. Probably most of our listeners or viewers will be familiar with him to some degree. I mean, he got a, a big like jump in popularity when he did the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of times uh, in the last several years. Um, but I think his first book, well, it wasn't his first book, but his first book on these 
uh, that started him basically on this topic was Fingerprints of the Gods, I think, in 90, 1995, around there. And so that's when he first kind of, um, you know, went on record with this hypothesis of his about the, you know, a lost civilization, an ancient advanced civilization, as he put, as he put it, that, uh, like you said, um, whose knowledge was then either passed down or spread um, among various cultures and ancient civilizations. So, like, uh, you know, the, the most typical being Egypt. Um, you know, you, you go into, a, like, a New Age section in a bookstore and you'll find just dozens of books on, you know, ancient Egyptian civilization with all kinds of theories. So he kind of, he naturally gets lumped in with all of the alternative kind of uh, woo-woo writers on this because he's, here he is, you know, hypothesizing this ancient, you know, advanced Egyptian civilization. And, you know, that sounds crazy right off the bat. Um, to most people, well, or maybe not, because you do have a lot of people that watch History Channel, so um, maybe not so crazy on the face of it. But <clears throat> he's been developing these themes since you know 1990. Well, since before he wrote that book in the early 90s, and so this is kind of like probably the culmination of of his work on these topics. I got I get the impression reading this book that he kind of planned this one to be his last one. That he feels like he's kind of wrapped up his life's work. We'll see if he you know, writes anything else along the same line. But um, it seems like he's kind of come full circle and wrapped it up. Like, this book is billed as, uh, like, you know, the well, the sequel to Magicians of the Gods, which was the sequel to Fingerprints of the Gods. These ones both came out in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, in between then, he hadn't really written a lot on, on this kind of history and his kind of speculations on that. He, you know, he wrote that book, Supernatural, on, like, ayahuasca, and, uh, and then a bunch of novels on, like, ancient... Um, or, or, you know, Colombian era, po just post-Colombian era, like uh, Mexican civilization, and um, a bunch of stuff there. Um, but he came back to these topics um, for Magicians of the Gods. I haven't read that one yet, but he talks about like Gobekli, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey and uh, the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis, which he also gets to in this book. So he kind of... Uh, puts it all together and then in this book you can tell he's tying throughout the book he ties what he's saying now to previous things he's written on this topic in fingerprints and, and subsequent books and um first of all i just say that uh for like i read supernatural and thought there were some interesting bits in that but i really don't i really just you know can't get behind his his take on uh like psychedelics um i think he's kind of um misleading himself and a bunch of others. I just, you know, we won't get into that, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't agree with his take on, um, psychedelics and his, his kind of like advocacy of, of their, the use. He's like super pro psych, uh, like psychedelics. Like he's taken ayahuasca like 70 times and DMT like 15 times or something. And, uh, that's just not something that I would do for various reasons. But in this book in particular, um, he pretty much stays to the facts. And I found this, like, just to review the book, I thought it was really well done. Um, he, he reads all the literature and he cites it, and he's, it's basically like a, a pop science book. He's summarizing a, a vast body of literature, scientific literature, and just kind of making it accessible, which I think is a great service because a lot of this stuff is new. A lot of, it's, a lot of it is not um, in the kind of... It's not in pop culture. It hasn't it hasn't filtered down yet. He's the one that's actually doing this filtering to to bring this this like you know vast body of research down to the level where you know uh, you know someone can just a regular person can just go to the bookstore and buy this book and read about it. So from that perspective, I found a lot of the book just to be just 
pretty like rigorous um, reporting on just the the state of research for various of these topics. And then just every once in a while, he'll throw in his speculation. And he's always really clear about it. Um, you know, well, 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 here's what I think this could mean. Um, but for the most part, he just stays to the, the researchers. And he, and he interviews, like, all these people. He talks to them and, like, kind of gets the inside scoop. So... Um, so I think it's uh, it's worth reading just for that because, like you said, there's there's he goes into such depth and there's so much interesting information in here that um, that you didn't learn in school, like uh, about the peopling of the Americas. Like um, like one of the one of the trends he points out is that <coughs> like um, oh as as the as research kind of develops and the kind of old dogmas die out, um, you get uh, things are moving in a different direction and. Um, it seems to be pushing back a lot of the like earliest possible dates earlier and earlier. So, for instance, like uh, people, scientists, researchers, academics used to believe that you know the that the first Americans only came to America like eleven thousand years ago, and then that got pushed back because there were these discoveries of the Clovis era people, named because of the the name of the like the arrowheads, the spear, the Clovis points, they call them, that they found all over the place. So, okay, so Clovis, the Clovis area, now those were the first people. And uh, now that theory, which was like, um, he, he goes through all the scientific controversies and all of the, just, you know, the, the backstabbing and the sniping and the meanness in the academic community about this and like the, the gatekeepers, like the people who represent a certain theory and then just shut down anyone who, um, who will bring up any evidence any kind of anomalies that might dis that might not support the the current theory, and just uh, just how kind of nasty they are, and <laughs> like mm -hmm. academics are, are are not morally virtuous people for the most part, just like everyone else. Like they're just as petty and small minded as you know the the average petty small minded person you meet on the street. Um, they just are more educated, so they have a higher opinion of themselves. That's you know. I, I think that would apply to about 99% of academics. But um, but now even that theory, the Clovis first theory, as it was called, um, is kind of uh, no longer the mainstream theory. There are still a few that hold on to it, but it's widely accepted now that there were people in the Americas before that. You look at the genetic evidence, for instance, and um, like uh, referencing back to... David Reich's book, which I've recommended several times on the show before that just came out last year, uh, Who We Are and How We Got Here. Um, like his estimate, you know, based on the genetic stuff is what, something like, uh, you know, 15 to 20,000 years or something like that. Um, so significantly further back, you know, twice as far back as, um, as the, you know, the, the first like 11,000 years ago theory. But now, um, like he quotes, like he shows in the book, there's some evidence, some archaeological sites that suggest um, uh, an occupation of the Americas as far back as like 130,000 years ago. Yeah, and that was a study that just came out, what was it, two years ago, last year? <laughs> Might have been two years ago, I can't remember exactly. But, uh, but the guy, the researcher that had found this, like it was, I, they, they first found this site, it was like a mastodon, you know, bone that kind of triggered them to it, which was found during like a, like a road construction project or something. So they call in the archaeologists, and then he, he kind of sat on the research for several years and didn't publish it because he wanted to be absolutely certain of it um, because he knows when you publish something like this, immediately the entire like, academic community involved is going to shut you down and just say, well, that's impossible. You must, have, you, you must be an idiot, essentially. But um, 
But the, the thing about that, like 130,000 years ago, that's as old as like, you know, mitochondrial Eve is hypothesized to be. Like that's pre, pre out of Africa, according to the main, the mainstream um, timeline of the history of, of humanity. That's a long time ago. So I, don't, I can't remember if he specifically gives a, an hypothesis on who these people might have been, you know, assuming that this, this, uh, this archaeological site is accurate and the, and the dating is accurate, which it seems to be, then you know, it, I think that, if anything, the, the biggest possibility is that it was one of the kind of archaic human species, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, Denisovan or Neanderthal. Like Neanderthals were kind of limited to Western Europe and, uh, and the Levant, um, and then, but Denisovans were all over, you know, Siberia and down in like the Australia and you know Papua New Guinea. So, um, so maybe who knows? Maybe there were Denisovans over in the Americas, like over a hundred thousand years ago, um, because there's, it seems like there was someone there at some time. And then um, another interesting thing, just in reference to the genetics, is that he found. Well, he didn't find. Um, the, the genetics researchers found like a genetic sig- signal in some of the Amazon tribes, like these isolated Amazon tribes, that showed they were cl- more closely related to, again, Australians and like Papuans than they were to any of like any alternative groups, like than they were to the northeast northeastern Siberians, from whom like the you know the Americans, the Native Americans are are. are assumed to have been or concluded to have been come from, um, you know, originally. So, right. They, they, um, so this was like deep in the heart of the Amazon, right? They found this, this trace or this, this strong signal, uh, suggesting a strong connection to Australia in that area. And so then the theory was, well, then, (laughs) I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around, but so it was like they, these people, um, from th- with that genetic uh, trace, they they just went up through like the Bering Strait up there, and they just marched straight down through ne- North America, avoided everybody, and marched you know down past Mexico through Central America to the Amazon, and then just set up camp in yeah. the Amazon. Like it was just they were just a beeline, um, and then had no because the thing like you said they have uh, in the North America they they don't have that same genetic trace. There's not. It's just completely just out of nowhere for whatever reason across the world, you know, a world away, you have this compl- this connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that they're trying to figure out, well, how do you, you know, how do you actually, how do you square that? Yeah. And the, like the most obvious answer, which, you know, he gives, um, is that there was like uh, a migration of like Australian, essentially like a- Australian Aborigines, like Potentially, it's hard to know when, but you know, maybe thirteen thousand years ago, a separate migration um, that established this colony or something that uh, that wasn't related to any of the like Siberians that crossed the Bering Strait or you know went down the coast or went through the you know the gap in the ice caps. Um, that this was a, a separate group of people. Now, the you know even the geneticists won't don't really want to go that far. Like David Reich talks about this in his book, and uh, you know he. He talks about the discovery of this, you know, these genetics, and uh, then hypothesizes what he called like a you know, popu- population Y, I think. So this yeah, unknown, yeah. this unknown second migration um, that would contribute to this, but it doesn't really make sense. Like you said, and like Hancock says, like for this group to just like you know come come through Alaska and then you know trek all the way down and not leave a trace anywhere except in the Amazon. It looks like they were planted in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's just 
you know, that blows people's minds. That blows like, you know, academics' minds in the, in these areas because it's just they can't conceive of something like that. But um but I don't know, you know, if you look at the um if you look at how the like the the Micronesia and the po- and Polynesian islands and all those were populated, like you know they got pretty far. They got as far as Hawaii, and that was in a recent migration. Like I think the the Polynesian migrations were just like in the last five thousand years ago or, or something. And this this seems to be an older uh, migration because the thing about Papuans and and Australians is that they they've been um, relatively like genetically and and geographically isolated for like thousands and thousands of years with not a lot of mixture with like southeast asia like the polynesia was was um you know populated by east asians essentially from taiwan and and moved over and then you know of course after that a whole bunch more mixing goes on but for this very isolated ancient population for like australians you know australian aborigines it's it kind of uh it it doesn't really compute for for that group to have somehow gotten to South America when their you know genetics don't show up anywhere else except you know in that area and perhaps you know up along in parts of South Asia, it's like it it's a it's a mystery. So I think he doesn't really get into too much speculation on what it is, but uh, but it makes sense that it would just be you know somehow they managed to get there a separate group that kind of like a you know kind of like the you know the first uh, Europeans coming to. To America, setting up a little colony, um, that seems to make sense. But um, you mentioned, like, oh, so so yeah, you mentioned it's called the New World when actually it could be, um, you know, as old as we're older than a lot of the old world. You know, with this popula- with a a history of occupation and human populations as old as um, a lot in Africa, and you know, as old as the archaic humans that were. Um, that were living in Europe and Asia at the time, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So it's like, it's, that brings the Americas um, kind of like just on the same, on a level playing field as everywhere else. And, uh, yeah. So um, maybe moving on a bit. Well, I want to tie, I wanted to tie this into our discussion last week and a couple of weeks ago on, um, on Witzel's book on the origins of the world's mythologies. Because one of the points that I um, I brought up in reference to the last chapter of his book, in the, like the meaning and the kind of overarching themes and meanings that are, are found in these mythologies, the one that stuck out in relation to you know Hancock's work is this above-below relationship and dichotomy. So you know, first of all, there's the difference the 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 difference kind of in quality of the the heavens and earth. Like the the heavens is the region of the of you know the gods and uh, you know the spirit world essentially, and Earth is you know just the the material world, the the Earth that we live in, the place that we live. And but there's also, <clears throat> like I mentioned, this uh, relationship and this kind of similarity and uh, kind of continuity between the two the two regions, where they're they essentially mirror each other. And so what happens below is a reflection of what happens above, and vice versa. So this is something that, again, that Hancock has been saying for years in relation to um, like the, the, the structures built on Earth by ancient civilizations. So if, again, going to the, the cliched examples like the, the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx and Stonehenge, so the, the ones everyone knows about. Mm-hmm. And so what he and a lot of others have done is like, you know, work on um, archaeo-astronomy, you know, relating 
the archaeological features um, to astronomical features. Like, um, you know, like, again, most people will probably know this, um, at, at various sites like this, ancient sites, um, you know, on the solstices or the equinoxes, you'll see, like, the sun rising in a, you know, perfect straight line out from, like, the middle of the pyramid or along a causeway or something, and it creates just these kind of, like, intricate and, um, and exactly, like, well-placed arrangements that result in these kinds of um, phenomena. So, basically, the people who had designed this had... Um, had knowledge of the heavens and like you know quite a good mathematical understanding of of like mapping these things out and creating these structures to to reflect the 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 happenings in the in the heavens and so in this book particularly he gets into that idea applied to the structures in the americas so maybe we can talk about that now a bit about the about what structures there are in the americas you know, so since um, um, since the first Europeans came over, they noticed certain things about the Americas, whether north or south. So in the south, you kind of you hinted at this, like the first uh, the first guys to um, you know travel along and explore the Amazon, for instance, noticed like huge cities, you know, vast architecture, like massive roads linking all these communities together, and just hinting at. And suggesting uh, a very, a very advanced level of civilization, one that um, one that later academics would deny. They looked back on, on these reports and said, "Oh, well, that couldn't have been true. Um, you know, we don't see any evidence for that anymore." Um, but again, Hancock gives the you know kind of the latest research suggesting, "Oh, well, they were probably telling the truth." Um, the thing is, is that most of these people like died off, whether from disease or warfare. Um, you know, in the last 500 years. And the Amazon just kind of grew over everything. And the Amazon had probably grown over a lot that had existed before. Now they're finding um, all kinds of mounds, so like built-up structures and henges. So basically, like like Stonehenge, like the henge is actually in reference to the, I, I believe, to the, like the, the kind of trench and hill that was dug out like in a circle around the, the area. So what they basically do is like, um, dig out um, like, almost like a moat. So they dig out a square or a circle or some geometric shape and then pile up the dirt that they dug out uh, on the outside or the inside. So you have this kind of double structure where there's a hill and then there's a depression and then it levels out. And um, so they're finding all of these uh, like henges and mounds. So just, you know, uh, an artificial hill essentially. And uh, one of the most famous ones in North America is the Serpent, uh, serpent Mound. Um, where is that one? Is that in? Do you remember? Is that, is that in, in Ohio? Ohio? Yeah. So. so it's this kind of giant um, artificial hill in, in the shape of a serpent, uh, like on the edge of this kind of like mini cliff that's looking out to the horizon. And he devotes several chapters to this one. And it's really interesting. Um, like over the years, the the researchers analyzing this have found that actually the head of the the head of the snake is actually again one of these archaeoastronomical alignments where I, I can't remember if it's the solstice or the equinox but you know one of the at one time um in the year you know the one of those important times the sun rises right in the you know in the vision in the 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 line of sight with the snake and even the some of the curls in its body link out to these other um you know of the four or eight significant line or earth or earth uh sun alignments basically so like uh, sunrise and sunset on the on the equinoxes and solstices, and um, 
So, but you find the same thing in some of the sites in South America, which aren't as researched as yet, but more and more are being discovered like every year. Um, these kind of alignments, kind of like to, to perfect north and perfect, um, well, to the cardinal directions, basically. And um, just how they all seem to follow this same pattern. And this, again, links back to, the, the, to, first of all, this idea of above and below, and then second, to his overarching thesis that this, these are kind of the, the remnants of a lost civilization, that these techniques were, um, are best explained not by um, coincidence and not by cultural sharing between one. It's not like the Egyptians were traveling all over the place, you know, telling people how to do this, that there was rather a common ancestor. So in that sense, his, his thesis is very similar to Witzel's, because Witzel has the same idea in regard to mythology, that all the similarities in all these myths track back to common ancestors until you get to one common ancestor that is the source of like the, the, the narrative storyline for all these other myths um, in all of, uh, you know, Laurasia, as he puts it, or Eurasia, Europe, Asia, and the, and the Americas. And, um, and for Hancock, it's that these specific um, practices relating to geometry and astronomy and mathematics trace back to an original civilization. And this would be one that, uh, that he places at, in like the last ice age, so pre um, like 13,000 years ago. So um, I don't know, do you want to get into his ideas on that or do you wanna, where do you want to go with that? Um, well, I just wanted to uh, read this, uh, this passage that Hancock has written. Let me see if I can find it. But he's, he's talking about the, the Serpent Mound. Um, and one of the interesting things is about the, the, where it's at uh, allegedly has a lot of strange anomalies around the area, dating back to a uh, possible um, cometic, uh, uh, cometary bombardment. Yeah, so like, this is like what, magnetic yeah. anomalies and stuff? So he said, this is what an Ohio geologist says. They had to know there was a significance to that spot, says Ohio geologist Mark Baranowski. They placed a deep reverence in Old Mother Earth. It's almost mystical that they built a spiritual site there. Similarly, geoscientist Raymond Anderson of the University of Iowa describes Serpent Mound Crater as one of the most mysterious places in North America. The Native Americans found something mystical there, and they were right. Dating back to the time of the impact, this cometary impact over the area, an intense magnetic anomaly centered on the site causes compasses to give wildly inaccurate readings. There are also, they also, there are also gravity anomalies caused by the impact, and there are multiple underground cap, uh, caverns, streams, and sinkholes that, in the view of Ohio archaeologist William Remain, would have been seen by the ancients as, as entrances to the underworld. Among many peoples, unusual or transitional areas such as this are often considered sacred. Indeed, such places are often considered supernatural gateways or portals between the celestial upper world and the underworld. And the thing is, I mean, and he goes on to say that, you know, the kinds of uh, scientific know-how that you have to do in order to kind of plot this out, to map it, you know, completely north and south, and to get... It, this requires a, a kind of know-how that we didn't even have until recently. I think they said that it wasn't even really perfected until, I mean, he said 1987 is when that, that was, you know, actually perfected. And to think that, you know, these, what we're called primitive savages, uh, were doing such a thing, it's, uh, it's quite mind-blowing. And then it suggests to me also that, I know, what, what is really causing these gravitational magnetic 
magnetic anomalies. Is it really from an impact or, you know, uh, I'm letting my Graham Hancock flag fly. Was there, a, was there something else, something, a residue of the, something that was going on in, in this place, you know, something of whatever they were doing there. Um, is that st just a residue of that, that time and whatever, po you know, potential technology they were using? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing is that he points out that with all of this stuff, basically it's all speculation. And as he says, every time you turn, every time you stick this, the spade into the ground, you're going to, um, you could unearth your entire th pet theory. And that's one of the biggest problems with uh, archaeology in general is that based on very limited data, you know, a few bones and, you know, just... Uh, and you're thinking about that, then you know you can you can create this whole storyline that is just in pure fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, and then you go down two more feet and you find out, oh, okay, so everything that I just said is just the absolute is absolute nonsense. And you know, you see that happen time and time again, whether it was with Serpent Mound or like in the caves in Siberia. This is one of the really interesting stories about the the Denisovans and the 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 material they found in the caves. Like one was a beautiful necklace or not a necklace, a beautiful bracelet. Mm -hmm. And it looked like it, I mean, it had been used by, uh, or built with techniques that weren't exhibited until thousands of years later. So then they just said, well, that can't have actually existed at that time. But then they found even lower and older, and, you know, by dating it, older than, than that, they found this, what looked like a surgical needle mm -hmm. made from bone. And it, and it had like a, you know, just like a microscopic tip. Like it, look, it was, it looks just like a surgical needle. And that's even older than the, and than the bracelet. And this, these are in Denisovan caves. And so ha Graham Hancock, he says, well, I want to go look at these things for myself. So he goes and then he tur it turns out that these artifacts have been sent to Paris. And so then he says, well, fine, I'll go to Paris and look at them. And they said, well, they're not, they're no longer allowed, no, the public isn't allowed to look at them. They're, you know, it's an international team of archaeologists that are looking at this. So I, I think under the surface there, you're, there's some kind of... Uh there's some kind of a crisis occurring um, for, I mean, maybe not a crisis, but there's, there's intrigue. There's intrigue behind the scenes with, with archaeologists who are looking at the data, the, the actual raw data, and they're looking at it, and they're just like, what the heck? We can't let this out. <laughs> we can't just let just any random people look at this, you know. Um, but there's some very serious study being done on the, the topics that Graham Hancock is discussing. Mm -hmm. and it's not just the realm of pseudoscience. It's very serious and very, um, very alarming information, you know, in terms of our modern worldview that, that we just all evolved over a million years and then it was only in the past however many thousands of years that we able, were able to wipe our butts. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, 50,000 years ago they were making surgical needles out of uh, mammoth bone. Um, yeah. You know, what is, what is, what's really, uh, what is our history? Mm -hmm. Where did we come from? Well, one of... One of the things I enjoyed the most was reading about the Amazon stuff because mm -hmm. a lot of that is really new. Like um, they've just, you know, like I said, they're just discovering a lot of these mounds like year by year. It's a very recent thing, you know. Until until recently, you know, again, this is one of the, this was one of those overarching theories, like the the scientific dogma of the time in the you know middle of the last century, where um, you know you couldn't say anything contradicting it. The idea was that. You know, the Amazon couldn't have been populated to any great degree 
you know, prior to several hundred years ago or something like that. And here they are now finding all of these mounds, like thousands of them, that are thousands and thousands of years old. <clears throat> and um, then he gets he gets into just a whole bunch of weird stuff, like the... Like the black the, dirt? Yeah, terra preta, like this, the, this black dirt, this black soil, because you know, one of the reasons they thought that um, widespread agriculture in cities couldn't, couldn't have existed back then was because the, the soil isn't very great in the Amazon. Like you, can't, uh, you can't farm on it repeatedly because the soil is really depleted. Like it doesn't offer you know, the correct you know, nutrition for, for growing crops like that. But there's this phenomenon of you know, black dirt, terra preta, which is kind of the the like the most nutrient rich and you know best growing dirt that you can find and it's this black dirt that uh, that they that they find you know at, at certain archaeological levels and it's it can still be used today and it's thousands of years old and the the conclusion is that it was it was uh, anthropogenic it was made by humans and uh, I, th I can't remember if this is the current theory but this was uh, was or is like a prevalent theory that um, it was just kind of created by accident that um, you know, there were these villages that uh, just used certain areas to throw all their trash, like their fish bones and their you know human waste, and uh, and you know, and then just kind of like accidentally burned it, um, and then covered it so that it didn't like actually burn. It smoldered, and that created this great dirt that allowed agriculture to to then take hold. Um, it's kind of a dumb theory because, like, uh, like Hancock says, it's like you need you need the population. You need the existing like large population to make enough refuse to create this dirt. So how do you get to that point if you don't have to, the dirt to start out with? It's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Like what it really looks like is that this was a kind of knowledge. It's like, okay, we know how to create this dirt. We need this dirt in order to farm. We're going to create this dirt in order to uh, to be able to expand and to be able to create you know this civilization. So that that leads him again to, in his speculative manner to the the hypothesis that. The kind of the, the that perhaps the original you know populating of the Amazon was sent out by this kind of previous civilization um, as a kind of well to to get there we need to talk a little bit about uh, the Younger Dryas impact because another of uh, another like big event in the history of the Americas which is only in the last like ten years or so coming to light is this is the Younger Dryas impact so this was like twelve thousand eight hundred years ago um, the Previous to that, the the Earth was in a big ice age uh, for the two thousand years, like from about you know four, in the fourteen thousands BC or no fourteen thousand years ago, the Earth was warming up, and then all of a sudden the you know the, the temperature just dropped for like a thousand years and before it started climbing again, and so and at the same time we have the the extinction of all of these what they call megafauna in the in the Americas, like you know giant like saber toothed tigers and mastodons and um, just a whole bunch of like giant species that, that are no longer um, no longer alive. There was a mass extinction level event that went on, and then also the the Clovis people, um, the Clovis people disappeared at that time. So you have like this record of Clovis level technology, and then you what you've got this black mat of like soot and charcoal and all of these different kind of. Uh, um, well, little bits of evidence that, that are just lying like right on top of the level of the Clovis people. So it's like it's like the entire America, North America, and and, and a bit south was just like blanketed in something. And it's only been in the last several years that 
you know, a small group of scientists, you know, renegade mavericks, have proposed that there was a, a massive cometary bombardment of the Americas, of the ice sheet at the time, that was responsible for all of these events. So you have, like, massive, like, uh, nuclear bomb-level explosions going on in the north, in the, in the you know, um, well, above the ice sheets, above Canada, essentially, and and that would uh, cause all kinds of well, it would it would melt a lot of of the the ice, displace it, um, potentially shoot out you know like giant boulders of ice to to then impact again further south. Um, he quotes one guy that that uh, hypothesizes that the Carolina Bays are a result of that controversial theory as he gets into, but. Um, but uh, you know, seems legit, and um, so. But you, but for then for like twenty one years, the you know um, I think this is Bill Napier, but but a bunch in this kind of um, cometary impact hypothesis group, the picture they paint is that just this massive destruction. So like huge explosions, um, essentially like setting setting perhaps the majority of North America and parts of South America on fire. Um, something like 10% of the entire biomass of the planet, so all of the plant life, um, went up in smoke essentially a- around this time, and so um, you have so you have these massive explosions, so intense heat and burning, and then followed by uh, like when when these impact like bolides essentially happen when these ex- when these like meteorites and cometary um, fragments come through the atmosphere. They basically punch a hole through the atmosphere and suck in like the cold from space, which then flash freezes the the region that was just previously in the in the in the past microsecond like on fire from this massive explosion. So you get massive expl- massive uh, heat and exp- and melting essentially, followed by extreme cold and freezing, and then. From all of this like uh, destruction, you get all of the particulate the matter in the atmosphere, um, cometary dust and soot and all this stuff that will create a cosmic winter, like uh, you know like that that uh, a nuclear that nuclear war is supposed to bring about. So that's why you have this like, thousands of years of of cold temperature because it just it set the it totally changed the climate of the earth. And there was mass destruction everywhere. And for these twenty one years, they hypothesized there were probably um, there were probably cometary bombardments every year for those 21 years as we were passing through the Torrid meteor stream at the time, because that's probably where the Torrids came from, is, this, is the breakup of this massive comet. So for 21 years in like, what, what is it, like October, you know, around Halloween, and well, I think it would have been just in the Halloween, I can't remember if it was just in the one or two times a year, but, um, but once a year you'd get, or twice a year, you'd get these, you'd run through this, region of space that was uh, very occupied. And so there were probably relatively large or small explosions potentially all over the planet for like at least 21 years before it kind of we went through the worst of it and it kind of died off until like, you know, for in the history since then, it's, uh, we haven't had that many encounters. Like it hasn't been, hasn't been as intense as it was 12,800 years ago. Like they, uh, looking at all of the um, what they call like the impact proxies, like um, um, different kinds of like heavy metals and elements and stuff that they find in this uh, black mat. <coughs> the what they what they've concluded is that this was the biggest worldwide like catastrophe since like the extinction of the dinosaurs. Like this is the biggest signal in all of their measures of looking at like 
past events like this. This was the biggest one in like millions of years. So this was a massive, um, a massive catastrophe for like not well primarily for North America, but for the entire world. And so how this relates, how how Hancock ties this all together is that his idea is that the his proposed like ancient lost civilization existed before this point, and in America primarily. Um, with outposts around the world, potentially, but that it basically just got wiped off the face of the earth through this destruction. And that um, probably the, uh, like one of the points he brings up is that back then the sea level was a lot lower, like tens of meters lower. If you can, you can search on like Google images, like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, ice age level or ice age, um, um, like sea or ice age coastlines or something, and you'll see that the like the the continents look pretty different. Some look similar, but some look remarkably different. Like Southeast Asia is like one landmass; it's not a bunch of islands, and um, the coastlines are all stretched out. And where do most you know where are most cities historically and even currently? Well, they're on the coast. They're on they're close to, to water. So when the the ice caps like got destroyed and melted. And uh, there was this rapid rise in water. Well, all of the you know prime real estate got drowned, and they're they're underwater. And um, so most most areas that would have been populated are kind of now off limits for archaeological research because n- not many not many academics and scientists and universities you know go out and take scuba te- scuba teams to to look for this kind of stuff you know off the coasts of all these continents. Well, yeah, just to just to hammer on that point a little bit more uh, before I go on, I just wanted to say that he was uh, he points out that that's like a just a worldwide problem with archaeology is that a lot of these places, I mean, you you really choose where you're going to look based on like the theory that you have. Yeah, you so if you find? have the theory that there is nothing to find in these kinds of areas because there, you know, there was no such thing as like a of an advanced civilization or any kind of civilization, or like in the case of South America, you know, that they couldn't possibly have built these large cities. So we won't even look. Then what happens is that there's just, you know, just the natural elements, um, take over. Like in the case of the Amazon, which he points out is like double the size of India, you know, it's not that big, but it's, you know, roughly that, that much space covered in forest, covered in, in rainforest. And, you know, so difficult to navigate, difficult to get in it. And, you know, if you don't think that there's any good reason for you to go in and spend all this time your budget, you know, and line up all the visas and all the government approval to go in and start digging things up, you're not going to do it. And so there's this huge amount of of area in, you know, like you were saying along the in this area that it was used to be settled land but is now uh, water underwater and in the Amazon and also in desert areas where there used to be um, you know, fertile lands abundant wildlife it would be a prime place to go look if you were you know trying to see if perhaps people did you know build cities build you know something there you could go down and you could dig but unfortunately we're just you know people that that kind of science you know it's not being done and uh like when i was when i was reading his idea like you know i think it's a cool idea like it's kind of you know, I like science fiction and fantasy, so it's kind of like a, a really cool sci-fi story that might actually be true. But um, so I'm 
reading this and I'm thinking, okay, well, if there was an advanced civilization that potentially had like um, the ability to, um, that was essentially global in some nature, um, you know, had seafaring ability like he thinks that they did, um, then wouldn't you be able to see like the, gen the genetic traces? Because like one thing you learn from Reich's book is that like the hunter-gatherer populations that were alive during the Ice Age, they tend to be pretty identifiable. Like they don't mix very much. You can you can doing these studies. You can find you know oh it was like for for thirty thousand years you know the Western Europeans didn't didn't mix with anyone else, and you know same down in you know Australia for a different amount of time and up in you know Eastern Asia. It's like so how do you get these isolated groups that don't seem to have any kind of you know uh, worldwide cultural or genetic connections with each other? And how do you square that with this idea of a global, ancient, advanced civilization? Well, the idea he has, and uh, and I think it makes sense, I don't know if it's true or not, is that uh, the hunter-gatherers could have been like, you know, like we, like our encounter, like our relationship with like the Sentinelese in like the, the Andaman Islands, like, and the, and a lot of hunter-gatherer populations up until, you know, recent centuries that were isolated. There were, you know, pockets of civilization um, you know, cities and, uh, and you know, big, big populations. And then there were all kinds of areas that were just populated by essentially hunter-gatherers. So he's saying that um, it's possible that that was the case back then for all these thousands of years. Potentially like a, a, um, a, an American or a small, or, well, relatively small, but who knows how big, you know, population that was advanced, but that was just um, kind of like all the other regions of Earth were habitated by um, like hunter-gatherers that didn't have an advanced level of technology, um, at least not as we think of it. Um, and that's what we find in the archaeological record. We find the, the hunter-gatherer technology, the relatively simple um, but sometimes beautiful like stone tools, for instance. And, uh, and that seems to be the, like, the le and, and the, like that level of technology, those levels um, persisted for you know, thousands and thousands of years with um, oftentimes, without any like great shifts one way or the other, mm -hmm. of course, with exceptions here and there, but that's the general trend. So it's like, uh, in order for his hypothesis to be true, you'd need to have a relatively relatively isolated group living on like r living in coastal areas or like in North America that was just completely destroyed thirteen thousand years ago, and that didn't have much interaction, at least not. Uh, uh, may, perhaps interaction, but not much, um, you know, mingling of genes going on. So, uh, who knows, maybe they had like, if again, if this is true, maybe they had like a, a kind of rigid, almost, almost like caste structure, but like, you know, we don't, we don't sleep with the natives, essentially. Um, and they basically could have like isolated themselves as like global Mm -hmm. oh, global overlords or something like that. Yeah. Well, but uh, that reminds me of one thing. Like um, the one thing I don't like about um, Hancock, which I mean, isn't too much of a of a. It didn't bother me too much because it's only, it only crops up every once in a while. But he seems to have this idea that um, you know the older the better, and any previous civilization must have been just this great, this great like idealized golden age civilization. So uh, he seems to kind of like idealize the past like that, which I think is kind of annoying because just because just because a culture, even if this culture existed, even even if this civilization existed, doesn't necessarily mean that they were any better than we are. It could have been a lot like us, for instance. 
Um, um, and so he's got that kind of that vibe kind of going on, and that kind of ties into his his uh, kind of psychedelics idea. Like he's like he any, anything that's like um, you know what others might call primitive or um, um, or out there, he just thinks is like really cool. And so psychedelics are really cool, and you know, you know, getting high and having these visions, man, that's that's awesome, and that must be like the, you know, the the high point in in life and and humanity is going on these trips and getting this knowledge from these from these spirit beings and all that stuff, um, which I think is it's kind of like uh, it's very it's very simplistic, like um, reality doesn't isn't often that clear cut. Like, well, not only that, but if you're positing that this is one way that this advanced civilization got their information, then I mean, look at what happened. To the, <laughs> look at what happened to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And that uh, that's why I was happy at like the very end of the book. In the last chapter, he writes um, he writes this. Now, this relates back to Witzel too. You'll see the connection. Uh, this is in a section called "Past Imperfect, Future Uncertain." So he writes. There are literally thousands of myths from every inhabited continent that speak of the existence of an advanced civilization in remote prehistory, of the lost golden age in which it flourished, and of the cataclysm that brought it to an end. So this is the Laurasian storyline, essentially. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a feature shared by many of them, the story of Atlantis, for example, or of, Nor- or of Noah's flood, is the notion that human beings, by their own arrogance, cruelty, and disrespect for the earth, had somehow brought the disaster down upon their own heads and accordingly were obliged by the gods to go back to basics and learn humility again. We'll pause again. This is what we were talking about last week about the, the flood myths. And, you know, I pointed out that uh, um, it seems like that, that myth, the structure of that myth kind of um, inculcated and introduced the idea of, well, this idea of moral responsibility and of consequences for actions, individual and kind of global in nature. So he goes on, um, where does this sense of ancestral guilt come from with its peculiar intimations of a mistaken direction taken by humanity in some remote period and purged by a global catastrophe? These are not the kinds of thoughts one would expect hunter-gatherers to devote much time to. A technologically advanced people, on the other hand, particularly if they had mastered the transmutation of matter, would have had vastly more potential for hubris and overreach. In the event of the cataclysmic downfall of their civilization, those who survived might well have reflected on their history and blamed themselves for what happened. Or uh, not necessarily blame yourselves, but you blame your ancestors. Same, same thing, essentially. But uh, again, um, maybe a, a too rosy view of people. It's like, oh, they, they saw the error of their ways and, uh, and uh, repented. Well, maybe, maybe not. Well, who knows, he writes. Uh, perhaps some hubristic excesses had occurred that would justify such speculations. A drift towards self-indulgent materialism, the introduction of human sacrifice, the appearance of a new and vigorously proselytizing cult denying the existence of the soul, the enslavement and exploitation of hunter-gatherer tribes, the arming of one group of hunter-gatherers, such, the, such as the Clovis, uh, to give it a competitive advantage over others. There could be a thousand reasons why the humbled survivors of a once powerful but now utterly destroyed civilization seeking refuge among hunter-gatherers might have arrived with a sense of guilt. So I thought that I, like, I was glad he wrote that because uh, it shows that he's he's actually he's actually thinking about it um, and not just he's not kind of blinkered and blinded by you know his own vision of what the past must have been like. He's actually just speculating and saying, well, maybe maybe it was this. Well, maybe it was that. Um, 
and he's tying it into these mythol these mythologies, and uh, so that's the kind of that gets me to like a, a tension. There's like a similarity, but there's also a tension between Hancock and Whistle. So um, I don't know if Hancock's ever read Whistle. I don't see. I haven't seen him reference uh, him in this book or you know in any in any other place. But it seems like Hancock would probably trace back like the origin of all these stories to the destruction, the, catac the cataclysm, essentially, of the Younger Dryas impact 12,800 years ago. Um, Witzel traces it back much further, um, you know, pre-Younger Dryas to, you know, uh, 40, 50,000 years ago, the f from the time of the first, you know, basically the, um, from a time where, at which, you know, one population could spread that um, through all of the, the continents, essentially, um, um, you know, by by kind of a, a direct transmission in that branching phenomenon. So Hancock would, I, I guess Hancock would probably say, oh, well, there was this massive destruction and everyone wrote the same myths about it. But I think that, uh, I think Witzel's probably more correct in the sense that the, the, the overall storyline probably existed because you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get so many of the features of the storyline um, to be so similar. Like you'd have, like the, probably the extent of what you could have from that destruction would be, you know, previous good times, massive destruction, and rebuilding. But you wouldn't get like the like Witzel points out, like the four generations of the gods and the, um, you know, the the the, the, the individual creation myths of, um, you know, like the humans descended from the from the sun god and um, and just kind of all of the specific features that that Witzel gets into. I don't think I don't think you could have that. Um, but definitely that, that event almost 13,000 of years ago would have kind of solidified all those myths and kind of reinvigorated them. It's like, oh, well, it, it would be seen as a playing out of the, of the existing mythology. Um, it would be, um, like, it wouldn't come out of nowhere. It would be like, oh, well, th those are the gods in the skies and, uh, and, you know, they're angry and we've done something wrong and here's this destruction. And it would basically fit those events and it would provide the... The framework in which to place the events that were happening at the time, and uh, kind of the yeah the explanatory framework for these just completely anomalous and you know cataclysmic events that that uh, that you know brought destruction to North America and various levels of destruction all over the planet. Right, and a lot of those myths, a lot of the story, uh, um, a lot of the features are pretty timeless, too. I mean, you can see that they could go way back. I mean, and we don't know how many times um, cometary bombardment has just destroyed whatever humanity has built and, you know, left them cowering in caves. Um, so we don't, you know, it's... It, but it, I would imagine that it's been, you know, it's more than just the, whatever, 12,000 years ago. And maybe not even cometary bombardment, but just some sort of form of natural destruction. And... Things like materialism, over you know, just hubris, overreach, and you know, imperial hubris. I mean, clearly, we live with the you know these Laurasian storylines, basically, and you know, we've lived with them for eons. But we still do the exact same thing. I mean, you know, if we, you know what I'm saying? It's it's very very easy that such a myth 
um, predated this this hypothetical civilization. And then afterwards, like you said, when everything came falling apart, it was just like, oh, well, I guess, oh, I guess, you know, the ancestors were right. Oh, I guess the myth, the morality, I guess they were right. But we were having such a fun time. So, you know, it didn't didn't really think we thought we had actually finally beat them, which that seems to be a recurring theme with uh, with humanity is that we, we always think that, oh, now this time we've got it beat. We figured it out this time. Now we can have our cake and eat it too. We'll just quantum remolecularize it. And then something, you know, and then everything comes falling down and you realize that, no, there's something much bigger to play. And the gods come to visit like 12,000 years ago and, you know, just wipe everything out and give humanity a massive spanking. And then we just get started back on doing the exact same thing again. Yeah. You know, just caught in this loop that seems to be recorded in, in myths and mythology and then also recorded in the soil and the dirt itself. If you go look, you can see time and time again this, you know, the futility. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, one, just maybe one last thing. We're doing, we're almost done, right? How, how are we doing for time? Okay. So one last thing that stood out to me that I thought was pretty remarkable was um, Hancock was at uh, Moundville. And I can't remember where that is in the States. It might be, I think it's along the Mississippi somewhere. But um, he was at this Moundville site, and then he looked down at the, like the placard that they had set up. Um, Moundville is you know, a, a, a site of numerous um, you know, Native American mounds. And there he saw like this myth set out that... Um, um, well, and so he saw this myth, and it had some features that reminded him of Egyptian mythology. And then he spends like, I don't know, three or four chapters going into these connections, which are just kind of like mind-boggling how similar these particular Native American myths are to certain Egyptian myths. And it has to do like, like um, I'll see if I can just list them off the top of my head. Like they both thought that um, like after death, the, the, like the souls of the dead had, well, first of all, you had certain different souls, certain different types of souls. You had one soul that ascended into the heavens. Um, one that stayed with you, um, with your like dead body. That's just, that's just one similarity. But the, that uh, like ascending soul had to get up to the heavens somehow. So it went up and it like got in the Milky Way, and the Milky Way was like a, a, a path that it had to travel. But it had to leap up to the Milky Way. Um, first of all, it le leap up to the skies, and it did that by going to the west. Um, in again both both structures. So I'm going to try to give the this just every feature that I list will probably be in both of these systems. So leap up to the skies into the Milky Way, and then to it had to go through. Then your soul had to then go through a portal through to the underworld, through to the other side, essentially. And that portal was located in the constellation of Orion. So so you had to you know get up to the Milky Way, get through the portal in Orion. And then you're in the, the, the other world, the underworld. And then once you're there, then you have a whole series of trials to get through in the afterlife. You have to defeat a whole bunch of monsters and evade all these nasty creatures, including one who's like the, the brain smasher or something like that. She's this, uh, this female uh, goddess or, or you know, otherworldly demon, essentially, that is there to destroy your soul by smashing your brains. So you have to evade this this nasty woman, um, who's out to to smash your brains in, and out, and uh, <laughs> and then there's also a, a like a dog demon who's not actually a dog. He's like part 
part all kinds of different animals like hippopotamus and alligator and all this weird stuff but he's also there to destroy your soul and so um that's only like a small fraction of the similarities but both the egyptians and the the natives had this remarkably similar like mythology and sequence and uh like structure of of the afterlife journey essentially um and not only that but how to how to get like how to prepare for the afterlife you had like you had to live your life in such a way that when you that you could then um pass through the trials of the afterlife and be judged worthy of um of continuing on and like taking your place in in the heavens and whatever happens after that um otherwise your soul would be destroyed and you'd be utterly utterly obliterated so um not only similar beliefs in the afterlife and of the purpose of life and you know what to do and what to prepare for but then these details like the like the portal in orion the portal in the constellation of orion it's like um uh that one was just kind of like well that's that's pretty pretty amazing just just how many details like small details like that lined up perfectly like even just the idea that there's a portal in the heavens and then it just happens to be in the in the constellation of Orion and you have to and you get there by the same route along the Milky Way and then once you pass through the portal you you encounter the same types of essentially like demon gods who are out to destroy your brains um it was and again more than that it was just pretty remarkable and he even gets into um some more ideas like from uh from the egyptian myths about the the history of this previous advanced civilization that destroyed and then they sent out people to basically recreate um the civilization anew and one of the features of that was to create mounds on the ground because the the mounds were the the earthly representations of the mounds in the sky the heavenly mounds so um there were these correlations and well correlations and like the inclusion of um like geometry and uh relationships to astronomy and all of these features are found in both both these systems and that's just what he deals with in this book cuz in previous books I haven't read that he talks about you know he finds these same features like all over the planet um which is pretty remarkable but it it uh, at least provides a potential explanation for why these mounds existed what their purpose was for it was they were the um the earthly mirrors of the mounds in the heavens and essentially like earthly portals to maybe regions where the 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 um the, the connections between you know above and below were more permeable so uh, more access to the 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 spiritual realms essentially and be, and that that kind of is reflected in the the um the the correlations with the the heavens at those particular times like they're aligned for these specific purposes and at, and the, at those times the heavens and the earth are you know aligned there's the, there's something kind of uh significant about that i just thought it was cool that uh there are so many there were so many specific correlations mm-hmm. between like egyptians and native americans which was just totally weird mm-hmm. but uh yeah anything else no i think that is furiously interesting though i i and i just want to uh, thank everybody for listening and i hope that we sparked your curiosity and if we did then click like hit subscribe because there will be much more of this 
uh, in the future. So thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.